Now turn with me today in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read, we'll read from verse 12 right through to verse 22. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 12. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. Reading, of course, from the authorized verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now my text this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. And I've entitled the message, The Vision and Value of Christ Church. Now let me make a very bold and radical, but I believe true statement this morning. Most Christians do not have a clue as to what the true church is. Or at least they have a very misguided, inadequate view of what the church is. You see, sadly, such a low view of the church prevails today. And that low view of the church is at best base and carnal and worldly. You see, if we use the word church, many talk of attending the church. That is, coming to the local church on a Sunday, if they have nothing else to do or nowhere else to go, and they attend church many like they attend the cinema or the theater or a football match and they hope the program is good and the performance will be enjoyable and they'll maybe speak to a few people, say hello and uh, then they're out the door and they rush home to do whatever they want to do. 
Now, now don't get me wrong. It's right and proper to attend church. Because the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And of course, that, that means attending the, the local assembling of God's people. But attending the church is not the actual church. Many attend a meeting place, but have no concept of being fitly built up together. No concept of growing with other saints in the household of God. The true temple where God dwells in the hearts and lives of his people. Many are attracted to the church without actually being a part of the true church. You see, many professing Christians almost behave like a consumer going to a shop. That is, they behave like a spiritual consumer and they, they shop around for a good church. And they shop around on the basis of what the church has to offer. Will it meet their felt need? Will it come to their requirements? You see, many get bored so easily. And then one day they'll decide, well, if the meeting uh, isn't meeting their need, they, they, they'll go up and go. And, and they, they never evaluate what the true church is. They never evaluate what the true church teaches. Is it uh, on the basis of sound doctrine? What does the church believe about God and about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the infallibility and errancy of the scriptures, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of heaven and hell? These things never get a look in. Many Christians never once ask themselves, well, what is the church all about? I heard recently about a man by the name of Joshua Harris. He wrote a book and he entitled it, Stop Dating the Church. And his argument is that far too many professing Christians date the church, but they're not actually devoted to the church. That, that is, they never commit themselves to be married to it. They, they, they live lives that are me and self-centered. And the thought is, do I get a good feeling every time I come and go to church? And they remain aloof. They, they remain independent. They don't want to get involved. They can be very highly critical about little things. And they can be very fickle if something isn't to their liking. They're up and away. Now, now I'm not criticizing uh, this morning. I'm, I'm trying to counsel I'm trying to instruct. I'm well aware that many of God's dear saints have been hurt in church. And if you're one of them, please feel free to contact me. Many have been frustrated about what goes on in some assemblies. And they're absolutely powerless to do anything about it. The leadership, of course, can leave a lot to be questioned. How many come to God's house and they're already fed up before they come through the door? They're, they're already bored out of their mind. They're, they're already completely disillusioned. They're, they're already frustrated. Now, if you think like that and feel like that as to what the church is, I want you to pause today. I want you to think with me. What is the church? What vision have you of the church? How do you value Christ's church? Why should you not just date the church, but devote yourself to the church? Why, why should you be, be married to the church? Keep married to it. Pray for it. 
want to make it work better for you and, and for the other saints. You see, the Apostle Paul, I believe, as he comes to the end of Ephesians chapter 2, is very concerned that we understand the nature of the true church of Jesus Christ. And he elevates what our understanding of what the true church is. Listen to these words. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth together unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And as you think about the vision and value of Christ Church this morning, there's three things that I took from this passage. And this was a passage that was read in martyrs and preached upon by the moderator on Monday night past uh, and I, I, I thought as I sat with Brother Mark uh, and others, three things. Here's the first thing. The foundation of Christ's church. L look at verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. One of the metaphors that the apostle Paul uses to help us have a true view of the church of Jesus Christ is in the form of a temple. Now, I want you to think of that. Think of the word temple. You might think of Solomon's temple. You might think of the temple in the days of Jesus. But you're thinking of ready of bricks and mortar. But I don't want you to think of a literal temple. I want you to think of a, 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 an edifice or a building that's like a temple. It's a spiritual temple. And this spiritual temple has got three parts. One has got a foundation, and that foundation has been laid by the apostles and prophets. It has a structure built in that foundation. All the building of living stones is fitly framed together and groweth up uh, unto the Lord. And that very edifice, that building, becomes and is the dwelling place of God. For he says, in whom ye also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in relation to Ephesians 2 and 20. Was I think of these words and asked what do they mean and what do they teach? He said this, there can be no true building without a right foundation. You must start with the foundation. You can't talk of a building without knowing something of its foundation. That's vital and central. And as you think of the foundation of Christ's church, think of this. It's a sure foundation. A foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, oftentimes that puzzles young people. I have to confess, for a long time it puzzled me. And they're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What is an apostle? Now, there's an essential parts to being an apostle. One of the essential parts is this. One who has seen the risen Lord. In other words, they have seen Jesus Christ risen bodily from the dead. By definition, apostle is a witness of the do doctrine of the resurrection. He testifies that he has seen the risen Lord. And that was true of the apostle Paul. He's seen, met, and talked with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He might have been a great preacher. might have been a marvelous teacher. He might even have been described by some as a prophet. But he could have never been an apostle if he had not seen and met with the risen Lord in the road to Damascus. In fact, he tells us, 1 Corinthians 15 and 8, that he was one born out of due time. 
And over there in 1 Corinthians and chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? You see, that's the criteria. Here's the proof. Not only the testimony of the apostles, I have seen the risen Lord, but you've got to also think about the teaching of the apostles. They were specifically called and designated and sent forth to be a preacher of the gospel, primarily of two things, the blood sacrifice of Christ and his bodily resurrection from the dead. And if you read Acts chapter 9, you'll think of Paul being chosen by Christ and called and commissioned to go forth and preach the message of the gospel that centers in the personal work of Christ. So not only think of the testimony of the apostles and the the teaching of the apostles, but but think of the task of the apostles. These holy apostles were, 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 were given great power and they worked miracles and under God they founded New Testament churches. In fact, Paul founded many New Testament churches. And one of them was in Ephesus. And it was these things that attested to their authority as apostles. You've got to think of their testimony, their teaching, the the task of these holy apostles. And of course, when you compare that and think of that, that knocks in the head any notion of apostolic succession. Apostolic succession, sadly, is an invention of Roman Catholicism. We'll ask another question here. What is a prophet? Some argue it's the Old Testament prophets that are in view. They prophesied about the coming of Christ. And in that sense, they helped to lay a foundation. Now, I have no problem with that. But it's also a reference to New Testament prophets. Prophets who functioned in the New Testament church. Note the order here. The apostles and the prophets. The apostles are mentioned first. Then the prophets. It's not the other way around. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 5, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, that is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So you've got to think of New Testament prophets, and they were in the Christian church in the first century. What is the prophet? A prophet is a person who receives a direct message from God and in turn departs that message faithfully to others. And it was tested and testified by the Holy Scriptures. Isaiah says in 8.20, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. Those prophets had no New Testament Scriptures. They had no Gospels. They had no apostles. And God gave them a direct message and they spoke it forth in his name. And the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles, their testimony to the risen Lord, their teaching about the personal work of Christ and the task that God given them and the uh, uh, prophets who who preached a message directly uh, from the Lord. These apostles, these prophets, were the first believers. They were men exercising faith in Christ. 
Men who believed the testimony of Jesus Christ in personal work. And men who then forth and taught what they believed. That's the real foundation. It's not only their testimony, but their teaching. You see, no one comes into the uh, New Testament church without believing in Jesus Christ. And you can't believe in Jesus Christ without the teaching of the person and work of Christ. So the foundation is really their testimony, their doctrine. I'll tell you something else very quickly. It's a single foundation. It says in our text, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Underline the word self, himself. And over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, we read, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What these men taught is the only valid gospel message. What these men taught was the true apostolic message. And that's the only real basis for church unity. Christianity is the most intolerant faith in the whole of the world because it is only one true message and that true message centers on the personal work of Jesus Christ. Didn't Paul say to the church at Galatia, he said, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Listen to these words in verse 8, Galatians 1. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. He emphasizes it. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. You see, the church's one foundation we were singing is Jesus Christ our Lord. And that foundation not only speaks of permanence, but it speaks of singularity. It is built on Jesus Christ himself. He is the massive, the chief, the only cornerstone. The whole structure rests in him, who he is and what he's like and what he has done. He himself said, Matthew 16, verse 18, Upon this rock, that was upon Peter's confession of him, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock, that confession, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't know how often you have driven round Belfast, but isn't it so sad to see many churches in our capital city, the windows boarded up, debris lying around the gate, or inside the fence, Maybe they've been converted into other uses, some pubs and clubs. What has happened? Why? The answer is that local body of God's professing people who met there for worship whenever they can and could, they moved off and they moved away from the foundation of the church. They lost sight of the church's message. The doctrine of sin and salvation, the doctrine of the personal work of Christ, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of hell, the blood atonement, the doctrine of the resurrection. And, and, and sadly, many of these churches, to try and be modern, they, they adopted a, a pro-abortion stance. They, they adopted a pro-transgender stance. They, 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 they become pro-homosexual and this and that. And, and in doing so, they abandoned the core message. 
which is repent ye and believe the gospel. And it undermined the very existence for their abasis. And once they ditched the truth, and once they, 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 they ditched the sole authority and sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures, God departed. And the glory was gone. And Ichabod was up in the door. Late Dr. Paisley used to say that Bible believing Christianity preaches Christ. And the preaching of Christ opens churches. And liberal humanistic teaching, which doesn't preach Christ, closes churches. Came across a little story. I was sharing this with the young people on Friday night. There was a debate at a local school. An Anglo-Catholic vicar from the Church of England was invited to come along. So was a Bible-believing pastor from a good, sound evangelical church. And during the debate, the... Um, Anglo-Catholic vicar, he questioned the authority of the, um, the Bible. He sought to undermine its infallibility and inerrancy. And he said about this Bible-believing pastor, he's out of step with the mainline denominations. Now, the wee pastor, he, he replied, and he said, no, this man's wrong. The main denominations are out of step with God and his word. And you know, that is true in Ulster. That's true in Wales and Scotland and, and, and throughout England. The mainline denominations are out of step with God and his word. To the law, to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, is because there's no light in them. And over there in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, we read these words. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Not only the sureness of the foundation and the singularity of the foundation, but think of the, the strength or the, the steadfastness of the foundation. You see, this foundation's true and unmovable. This foundation is unassailable. The psalmist asked the question in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? But I want to tell you there's a foundation that cannot be destroyed. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. And no matter what the devil does, what the world does, what the agnostics and the atheists do uh, uh, in, in trying to attack Christ, you cannot fight against God and win. In the end, the Lord will laugh. In the end, the Lord will triumph. As the Bible says, of God before us, who can be against us? So that's the foundation of Christ's church. Very quickly and secondly, I want you to think of the features of Christ's church. Look with me at verse 21. In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Now, I want you to think of the features of Christ's church under this thought. The saving of the stones. You see, it says in whom all the building fitly framed together. We've got to think of a building being built. And in old times, buildings were built of solid stone. And every born again believer is a living stone in Christ. We were formerly dead. 
We were formerly blind. We were formerly deaf. But we've been alive. And you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 and 1. And here's a question this morning. Are you born again? Are you conscious that even though you were formerly spiritually dead and blind and deaf, you're now alive unto God? You're conscious of sin. You've confessed your sin. You've said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. And, and you testify now that you're saved and you're in Christ. And that he's your Lord and your Savior. And, and your mindset is holiness unto the Lord. Can you picture this morning a dead stone? And that stone then that was dead is made alive to God. Well, that's the picture. One dead sinner being made alive like a stone, made into a living stone, and has been fitly framed together with other stones in a building. And together they grew up into a holy temple in the Lord. The words fitly framed together, three words in the English, one word in the Greek. Now, the picture is not of a, a brick layer. The picture is of an old stone mason. And... Um, it's not like the new wall that's gone round the church. That's called five-layer stone. That's not the picture. Our picture's of an old stone mason building a wall. And I've seen one at a farmhouse outside Saintville. And the man, of course, that's listening will know where I'm thinking about. And it's a fascinating job. In fact, it's a beautiful job. The, the craftsmanship. Now, now, what do you think the... the, the, the um, the stonemason does. Not only is there the saving of the stone, but in a spiritual sense, there's the selection of the stone. Who chooses the stones? The stonemason. He does the picking. He does the choosing. He's in charge. His skilled eye, his good hand, his, his knowledge of stones. He picks and chooses which stones are best suited for individual parts in the wall. And in the Christian church, the master builder, the Lord himself does the picking of these stones. If you want proof of divine election, here it is. Ephesians 1 and 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He does the picking of the stones. He puts his hand on you. You're dead. You're dry. You have no desires for him. You do not love him. And he picks you up in his sovereign purpose and makes you a living stone in Christ. And it's an individual divine choice that he has made. How many profess to be a Christian and yet never realize God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, in eternity past. He, he set his heart in you. He gave you to Jesus Christ in the covenant of redemption. He, he, he chose you to be a living stone. He, 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 he cleansed you. He, he, he um, made a point of, of selecting you to be part of his spiritual temple. He made you the object of his love, his grace, his mercy, his favor. And he gave you to his son, Jesus Christ. He redeemed you by blood. He, he called you in time. He, he changed and transformed you. And you have been placed by him in a spiritual temple. And you're now destined for glory in heaven. You, you're a part of that temple. 
Think not only of the selecting of the stone, but, but thinking of the shaping of the stone. See, see, once the stonemason has the stone in his hand, and I saw this, having the stone in his hand, he looks at it, and he takes his hammer and chisel, and he cuts and shapes that stone before he puts it into the wall. It's a whole process of preparation to fit that stone into place. And you see, there's a lot of planning on God's part because God not only saves us and selects us, but he shapes us. There's a divine work going on to cut off the rough edges to do with character and temperament. He deals with not only the big sins, but the little sins of pride and jealousy and envy and temper and lust and lies and covetousness. And once he saved us from sin's penalty and sin's power, he knows, of course, that we're fallen in Adam. He knows that we're misshaped. The Lord sets to work in our heart. You think of the 12 apostles. They were all so different. You'd got impetuous Peter. You'd got doubting Thomas. You had James and John, the sons of thunder, all so different. And yet the Lord not only saved them and selected them, but he shaped their lives because they had a special place in a spiritual temple. I came across the Chinese author, Wong Ming Du, and it was his life story and he entitled it, A Stone Made Smooth. And he talked in that book about the Lord dealing with them. And the Lord cutting off the rough edges and the sharp corners by a process of discipline. He talked about the ups and downs of persecution. The ups and downs of imprisonment. Crisis after crisis. He said the Lord was taking the hammer and chisel, fitting him for that spiritual temple. A stone being fitly framed. Here's a man who was knocked about, buffeted, attacked, but he saw it all in the purposes of God. He, he, he knew that it wasn't bad luck that had come his way. He knew that it wasn't karma. He knew that it wasn't accident. He, he knew that the Lord is sovereign and the Lord is working out his holy purpose. And through that, he became a very holy man of God, a great man of prayer, a man who loved the Lord, a man who found his place in Christ's church, and lived for the good of helping others. And this shaping process, folks, is ongoing. It started the day you get saved. It never stops. It won't stop until the die, day you die and enter heaven. Isn't it so hard when you're being buffeted? There's a temptation to be bitter. Wallow in self-pity. Poor me. But let's realize that in all of these circumstances that's happening to us, God is at work. There's the hammer and chisel process. God is behind it all. And as he hammers and chisels and polishes away at each stone, he's doing it for a divine purpose. Remember Romans 8 and 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. But not only think of this, the saving of the stone, the selecting of the stone, the shaping of the stone, but think of the setting of the stone. If you look at our text, it says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. You see, that stone is then carried to the wall and carefully placed in the wall by the master builder. Having selected it and shaped it, it sat where the builder wanted it to be, in the rightful place. And of course, when the stone wall is finished, 
you look at it in amazement. And you've got big stones and you've got small stones. And it looks as if they all belong together. And they're all built upon that strong foundation. And when the building is erected, you discover that building is made up of living stones. Each stone saved, selected and shaped and set by God for a specific purpose. And I suggest to you this morning, these stones are individual believers. And they're built up a spiritual house unto the Lord. There's various stones of all shapes and sizes. But they're built together to display a pattern. A pattern designed by the stonemason himself. Each stone is necessary. The large stones are necessary. They're highly visible. They're very ornate. But there are other stones and they're small. And they're hardly noticed. But they're all essential. Just the same in the church. And they're all fitly framed together with mortar. And of course, what joins us together is the blood of Christ. And the builder, he is an eye to the finished structure. And that's the picture. Over there in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, if you look at it. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. The apostle Paul says this. Listen to this text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in um, verse 14, it says this. Now we exhort your brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient unto all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. You see, there's all kinds in the church. There's those who are unruly and they have to be disciplined and it says the feeble-minded and they're to be comforted and then there's the weak they're to be supported think of the weak ones think of the wee ones think of the wayward ones you see we're all at different stages as first john 2 and 13 points out some are fathers in the church in a spiritual sense. Some are young men in the church and they're strong for Christ and their love for Christ is manifest and seen and we want to see that. And others are children and there's weakness and there's waywardness. But each needs to be respected. Each needs to be loved and helped and adored. Each needs to be embraced as being precious for who and what they are in the Lord. You think of a family, your own family, you think of a fellowship. And, and like the family, we accept and love and cherish each member of our family. Even if they're weak and wayward. Including the wee ones. Well, you wouldn't want to imitate or uh, intimidate someone in the family. You wouldn't want to victimize somebody in the family. You wouldn't want to look down upon one in the family. Well, what's true in a literal sense has to be true in a spiritual sense. Think of what we are in Christ. All sorts in Christ. And each of us matters. You think of the stone wall. I've seen stone walls with stones missing. I've seen ugly holes in the wall. And of course, it's not beautified the way it was designed to be. In fact, when there's a hole or stones missing, it misses that beauty of being finished. I rejoiced in the sense that a pastor who spoke to me not so long ago talked to me that he was in a meeting one time 
And uh, when the meeting was over, there was only one man left. And he asked him, are you the caretaker? And he says, no, I'm only the chair stacker. I'm only the chair stacker. In other words, there was one man left to stack the chairs. And he was doing it for Christ. And maybe there's older people listening to me this morning. And, and you're not so active that you once were. And you can't get out to church. You're housebound. And, and I want to tell you, you're needed. You're, you're valuable. You're loved. We can taste and experience your prayers. You could make a phone call. You could send a card. You're not useless. You're vital. You have a place. You matter. You can still give. There should be no jostling for position in the house of God. None of us should be full of pride because we have nothing to be proud about. None of us should be boastful. Let's never ever give that impression that we're going to intimidate somebody or we're going to victimize somebody because it's wrong and sinful. Each, all sorts have to be respected. Let's realize who and what we are in Christ. Now, one final thing, and I'll just mention it. The function of the Christian church. It's a dwelling place of God. In whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you know this morning, you and I in Christ, as these living stones that have been saved and selected and shaped and set in the, a spiritual temple, you and I are the temple of the living God. God dwells in us by his spirit. He in fact says, I will dwell with you. Do you know God is here? We were singing that. God is here and not to bless us. God is found here this morning. He, he makes us our home. Where do you go to find God? Well, well, he's here among us as we worship. Where is God? God is in the midst of his people. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He's not in the temple at Jerusalem. He's not in the temple at Samaria. He's not in a localized place where God's people gather together to worship him in spirit and in truth. He's in the midst because he dwells in our hearts by faith. He dwells in us by his spirit. That's the function of the church. Can you get sight of this foundation? Can you get sight of these features this morning? Can you realize this function? That God has saved us that he might indwell us by his spirit. What a tremendous truth that is. I haven't time to develop it. I'm not going to this morning. But I leave that thought with you. And I pray that the Lord will richly bless you as we have come together for this time of worship. We're going to sing in closing.